Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Jed, really excited to have you on the show. You are someone who is leading angels and syndicate formation across Southeast Asia and Asia and the world. So I'm really interested to hear your story. Could you introduce yourself real quickly? Thanks for having me on, Jeremy. So quick background, I'm basically an operator. The last venture I built was an API marketplace. It turned out to be the world's largest API marketplace through a deal I did with a startup called Rapid API back around 2016. They're an A16Z-backed company and a unicorn today. I'm also an angel investor, and I built my own syndicate over the last couple of years. Today, I'm backed by 1,000 LPs. We're actually crossing that four-figure mark at the end of this year. And I focus my time today also on angelschool.vc, which is a program that I develop and teach to other angels to help them build and scale syndicates so that they can deploy capital and invest at scale. Amazing. So let's start from the beginning, right? You started out in Southeast Asia oil and gas before you became an operator and investor. So how did that happen? So long story short, I kind of split half my life uh, in Singapore and the other half of it, you know, studying and working around the world. After undergrad, I did oil and gas, you know, around Singapore and, and Malaysia, operating around Asia. And basically was desperately bored, right? I mean, that's like the reality. I, I realized as a young 20-something, I really wasn't like learning anything, wasn't really being challenged. And that felt extremely uncomfortable to me. And also, you know, I had this longer term view that, you know, in our lifetimes, at least, oil and gas or, you know, fossil fuels is going to be a declining sector. It's a sunset sector and it didn't make sense to stay there for the next, you know, 30, 40 years, whatever. And so I took it upon myself to make a change, right? And that change initially involved, okay, I want to go into tech. And, and the pathway there for me was, okay, go back to grad school and go figure that out. So I went back to do my MBA in SEAD. And after that, basically made a series of hops into tech, which led me to investing and building my syndicate and et cetera. And how did you transition from oil and gas to tech, right? Because that's also a jump in itself. With great difficulty is the answer. <laughs> the more nuanced answer is that it happens in a series of, of steps, right? For me, going back to grad school, getting my MBA, you know, a reputable school like INSEAD, I guess it opens up pathways, right? It creates opportunities. That's not to say, you know, you get a handout and you can just pick and choose any opportunity in the world, but it gives you a fighting chance to find a new role in a new sector, a new country, a new function. And that's basically what I did. I started doing corporate strategy with like large global MNCs and then fell into corporate entrepreneurship, right? Basically helping Ericsson build a new business line. After that, got a job, you know, doing effectively the same thing in a, in a more tech-based company. And, and that basically was doing corporate entrepreneurship in tech. And then after that, that was a much more natural like segue to understand tech, and then get into angel investing. So what was that transition like between oil and gas to tech? I mean, what were some things that you had to unlearn in order to get there? 
I don't know that there was a, a lot to unlearn as much as there was to completely reinvent everything that you know, right? I mean, and just relearn something else. I was trying to do a lot of ambitious things at the same time, right? Basically making three changes at the same time. And so there was a lot of, I guess, putting yourself out there and getting a lot of rejections, which is extremely difficult, right? I think you, you definitely like question yourself and, and start thinking, well, is this the right step? Will it work out? What happens if you run out of money? All that sort of thing. But I persevered and, and eventually it worked itself out. I guess in the end, you know, it was about focusing on keeping some things constant and then, you know, minimizing the number of changes, right? So for me, it was like, okay, I can like spin a story around like strategy. So I kind of worked out some targeted search around like doing like corp strat. And then it was a matter of like navigating, okay, a new industry and like uh, geography. Oh, it's crazy to see how you move from drilling uh, <laughs> yeah, like coal to yeah. around. Or oil to, I guess you're still drilling for tech, yeah, I guess. Maybe you know? in some so, ways. Yeah. Trying to find that lucky uh, gold mine. That's right. right. I think there you are, obviously, you know, you're an operator as well. Like you said, you change geography, you change role, and you change industry as well. And then eventually you went on to kind of explore investing and angel investing. Could you share more about how that happened? I think I was in a place where, you know, things were stable for me. I was putting aside, you know, liquidity, debts were paid off. I had the interest, I had the passion, I had the risk appetite for, you know, investing in startups. It was always something I was very interested in and I was willing to put my capital at risk. It's, it's as simple as that. And from there, you sort of plow on like a, like a journeyman, like most of us do, right? You know, you think about the path of most angels who don't have the opportunity to work professionally in, in VC or investing role. You, everyone's figuring it out. So I fundamentally believe it's a, it's a solvable problem. You know, it's about, I think, building networks, learning from the wisdom of other people who have come before you. And really, when you think about it, we're super fortunate, right? We're living in a time where knowledge, information, the infrastructure ecosystems are so much better than, than what it was 20 years ago, right? And so we're basically benefiting from, from whatever else everybody else has done before. And like the generosity and wisdom of, you know, other people in the ecosystem, which has been fantastic. So what mistakes did you make as an angel investor, right? Because everybody does. It's such a weird skill set. It's such a weird role and it's such a weird time to be an angel investor. So you got to have made some mistakes in the early For days. Sure. What were there? Probably like getting too excited about the idea. I think like that's always like the sexy headline that's, you know, a big attention grabber, right? And you say somebody come up with like this great idea and it sounds so crazy interesting and you, you fall in love with that. And, you know, you put on the blinders or I did put on the blinders and then, you know, I look past things that, you know, now say like, yeah, this is why I have a checklist for this. You know, I shouldn't do that. I should look for this, you know, <laughs> the simple mistakes. Yeah. So I think, you know, my answer would be just falling in love with the vision or like a really charismatic founder, right? Because like those things can work for you and against you. So what should you look for instead, right? I mean, okay, so it's not the sexy idea. Okay. Is it the founder? Is it a team? Is it starting to hint at the things that you should do, but that's right. So say what that is. So I don't want to give like a, a canned answer, right? But the simple answer to like kind of solving this is to look holistically at, at every deal that comes across our desk. Okay. So what does that mean? Actually, we force ourselves to look at 
a company in like eight different aspects of it, right? All the way from like the business to the economics, to the market, to the team, to the valuation, all of these things. So we've got like written frameworks, you know, like this discipline, this investment discipline that we put ourselves through when we're evalu- evaluating a deal. The other thing that I found has been really helpful is that I force myself to articulate why I think this is an interesting company in a very simple like two-pager document, just bullet points, right? Why this makes sense in terms of the business, why I believe in the founders, et cetera. And then I basically shared with other investors in my network, right? People who work with me and say like, hey, here's my thing. Just read that, like park all, all the signals, right? Don't meet the founder, don't get charmed, don't, you know, whatever. Just look at this and like, tell me, am I like crazy or not, right? Or is this like sound interesting to you? And I think tapping into that collective wisdom of other investors who, you know, don't have a a vested interest and don't just like poke holes. It's a great way to keep yourself honest. What's the most uh, biting feedback you've ever gotten then? (laughs) Yeah, the most biting feedback. Oh, ah, it's a good question. I don't know. We're going to have to like circle to that one. Like I, I haven't hit got hit with anything that was like so stark that it's just like left the mark on me. I do know that my bias is like when I get into a deal, I get super excited, right? I start to like want to convince myself. That's like like the bias I have. So it's like most often the feedback that hits is when somebody's like, well, I'm not as excited about it and I tell you why, right? And that's always good, right? Because it's a good check and balance against like your own like you know, internal mental models. You know, what's interesting, of course, is that, you know, you're learning as an angel investor and then you're learning about what to do, what not to do. And then now you want to help other angels build syndicates. Okay, so I feel like you're ascending the hierarchy, right? In a sense, right? You know, from Malaysia oil and gas <laughs> to, <laughs> to tech, the operator, to, to helping other angels, right? So what's going on there? What did you see? was going right, going wrong with other angels. They said, okay, I want to kind of like build something. Sure. So uh, all of this has been an evolution, right? You know, I'm not, a, I guess, impulsive person by nature. I don't think, you know, I like to be quite deliberate about, about how I operate and, you know, have a certain way of like, I need to like believe in this myself. Otherwise I can't sell the idea, right? It's, I'm just not one of those people. So when I started out angel investing in 2016, 17, I was investing into seed stage companies in the US. It was B2B software. It's just what I knew. Planted a few checks and I did okay. 2018, I got my first exit. I invested early on in a company called Turing.com. And that company's done very well. They're a unicorn, you know, and the position that I'm in probably is going to be a 100 or 200 multiplier. And there were these data points that suggested, I'm not saying that it says I'm a great investor, they suggest that I'm not completely garbage which gave me the confidence to take the next step, right? Which for me was, okay, go build a syndicate because you can scale up on capital. You can get into better deal flow. You do better diligence. And of course, you want to charge carry and, and capture some of the upside. Worked on this and figured it out for a couple of years, two, two and a half years. And somehow cracked this puzzle, right? Just through my own methodology, my own way of working. The indicator for me was like, hey, okay, I managed to convince literally a thousand people to be part of my mailing list. And when I send out my deal newsletter, I get a 65% open rate and a 6% click rate even today. And as we grew the network, the check sizes that we wrote just grew. There's a direct relationship, right? Not necessarily directly proportional, but there is a correlation. Immediately, I was able to write six-figure checks. 
you grew that over time to what we write today, maybe between half a million and a million dollars, right? And most of this, it was a side hustle. I was like writing quarter million dollar checks on the weekend, you know, in this company that I thought was interesting and that other angel investors saw and they were willing to back. Again, that's a pretty good set of data points that this methodology, how I was approaching this was working. And I think the real insight on this, Jeremy, is that if you think about syndicates as a source of capital, right, they sit in this vital function between independent angels, friend and family capital and VC rounds, right? Because you're talking about six-figure check sizes that provide meaningful capital and hopefully get these companies to, to a VC round. My best estimate, they move tens of billions of dollars a year, at least $10 billion a year in the US alone, let alone around the world. And yet in the education space, there is no framework thinking around doing this, which is absurd to me. So think about it. Every single angel out there with a syndicate, every single one of them has had to go out and reinvent the wheel. So logically speaking, if you accept that argument, it means that this market is artificially constrained, right? Because this underlying infrastructure of how to do this the right way is, is actually doesn't really exist. And that was, I guess, the impetus for, for angel school, right? We create this methodology based on my own experience. I teach it to other angels because, you know what? I want angels around the world to be successful in moving capital to startups in a more efficient way so that, well, as a startup founder, you're not hunting around for five or 10K checks, right? Work with a few groups who can write you six-figure checks. It makes your life easier. It's a way of moving that capital to the, the right place. It's also a way of these different angels fulfilling whatever investment thesis that they have. Because I invest in my little corner of the world, which means there's a lot of different companies that I can't help, but it doesn't mean that somebody else couldn't because I don't really think, you know, I say this a lot. I don't think the problem in venture today is a lack of capital. There, there's plenty of capital. What we need is actually market makers to get over like these frictions. So what is wrong with angel investing today? I don't think there's anything wrong with angel investing today. I think that it is an extremely inefficient process or it takes a lot of time and effort to do angel investing well. Very often, much more time and effort than most people have because people who are angel investors, they have labor income, they have some capital they're willing to risk, and they want to do this. But the hard part is, okay, go find all these companies and then screen all of them and then go make your picks. And you do all of this to deploy a, a 10 or 20K check, whatever that number is, right? Not, not super scalable. I mean, so in the same way, I see that syndicates also do a service to independent angels in, in making that market. You get curated deal flow. Presumably, if the syndicate lead knows what they're doing, they have these economies of scale on deal sourcing. They have better quality diligence and curation, and they package up all this information in the right way so you can look at it in a, a much more efficient manner and, and just decide if you want to pull the trigger. In exchange, you pay some amount of carry or fees or whatever, but they've got to decide if that's worth it. I generally think it's worth it. I personally would pay 20% carry if somebody got me into a really hot deal that I couldn't get access to. I think it's a fair trade. You know, I think there's always that debate, right? So what is the function of the syndicate leader, the angel that brings all the other angels, right? So there's that inherent tension about what you just said, which is angels want to write checks, but they're time compressed. 
syndicate leaders can bring them deals, but then you have to pay them something. So there's that tension all the time, right? Uh, so how do you see the healthy way of looking sure. at this? Or what's the optimal approach? I think like the tension actually goes like more beyond that, right? It's more than the trade-off of just like the economics. Because if you think about different groups that are aggregating, you know, deal flow and, and providing that, the level of engagement is drastically different, right? Which honestly is a hot mess on AngelList, for example, or even a lot of the equity crowdfunding platforms. It's very much, here's a pitch deck, here's a minimum check, you're in or you're out. And then the natural inclination for the syndicate lead is just like bombard them with deals, right? Because your goal is like, just make the market, just move as much capital. You're basically buying options with other people's liquidity, which, you know, philosophically I'm against. My view, maybe it's not very scalable, but I guess from a first principles basis, like I fundamentally believe in this, right? If you are going to be a syndicate and you're going to charge carry for this, you need to step up your game and, and really deliver value, right? And for me, value is, it's a few things. One is you should be seeing deal flow at scale. You should be performing a higher level of diligence than individual angels could do themselves. You should be packaging up all this information into a format that is easy, that makes it easy for individual angels to decide. The other level of addressing that tension, I think, is alignment with the individual angels or, or LPs. The model that we operate on, it's minimal fees, 20% carry. Why? The fees are, it's pretty much like a cost pass-through and it helps me keep the lights on. But I play for 20% carry because it aligns me with, with my investors, right? I want to find deals and be very purposeful about hopefully finding winners that return them a profit because then, you know, I get a share of it. So that's kind of like my way. One is the actual standards of work that you do. And the other part of it is, you know, structural alignment in terms of incentives. I think what you said was really interesting, which is that there's a fundamental, you know, conflict of interest, right? To some extent, where the syndicate leaders obviously have to provide additional value, otherwise angels don't bundle in. Yet they're also incentivized to do multiple deals because it creates more options, right? So what's the optimal approach or how do we break past that paradigm? Because even with management fees, obviously that's an issue for VCs, right? <laughs> they get at scale, they get make more money from management fees than sure. the, the actual carry yeah. in many ways. But how do you solve it? Yeah. I think like a lot of the lens that we look at, at running our syndicate is, I, I have this view, right? That I don't know it's, it's that commonly held. I fundamentally believe that the currency we operate in as running a syndicate is in the trust with investors. If you have the trust with investors, I think capital follows, right? That part I'm not worried about. You know, trust for me means I send out a deal newsletter. I have a high probability that somebody is actually going to read my email and pay attention to the deal and not send it to the spam folder. They will see my deal flow and they will give it the time of day and consideration and decide if they would actually be part of the deal or not, right? That's what matters to me. And so if you think about, about things from that lens, right? Trust as a currency, it disincentivizes me from bombarding them with deal flow because it then seems like, well, I'm just throwing paint against the wall and seeing what sticks, right? And so it pushes me towards doing fewer deals, but of course, not so few that I'm just, I seem inactive. Uh, what's the optimal number? 
I really can't say, you know, our, our target run rate is to do, you know, six to 10 deals a year, roughly. So relatively low volume. What would you say are some myths or misconceptions about angels who want to become syndicate leaders? I think the misconception is that most angels who want to get to that level, they look at three things, right? They, they have three questions that they're looking to address. One is, where do I find LPs? How do I like, you know, find the source of capital? Second, how do I find deal flow? And then the third one is, how do I move capital? And those are important questions. You need to have answers for those. But really, there are a lot of non-obvious things that people don't even realize. And I didn't even realize this when I started, right? I've just learned a lot about this vehicle over the last two years. Uh, They don't realize it exists. and, And so they become, they get into a setup where it's not viable. So I'll give you a couple of examples. One is, okay, I meet somebody. He's an angel, pretty far in his journey. He's done one or two syndicates of his own with friends and family. And great, awesome, right? It shows that you have the ability to access a network and compel capital. And, and that's something. And I talk about you know, what we do at angel school and they'll go like, well, I'm too far along. And, and they might certainly be. But I think you know, in that situation, one of the mistakes I've seen is that the angels, these early syndicators, they think they have access to capital and, and they stop there, right? But if you keep working with the same pool of capital, you're going to like dry out the well. Well, obviously that's a problem because if you run out of capital, then you, you can't invest. The other one is if the other scenario is like you're really successful at this, right? You can, you're a hell of a salesman, you're a hell of a networker, you can just grow this. Then the consequent challenge is you get stuck in ops and managing the LP network because you don't have a very sophisticated, scalable way of doing things. So it's like, okay, as you grow, there's this big giant distraction of like managing LPs and doing things like sharing deal flow on WhatsApp, Telegram, or Slack channels instead of having like proper data rooms or to compel capital, you need to talk to LPs one by one, right? Which at scale, it just doesn't work. It's both the fundamental layer, just thinking below the surface, and then also thinking like long-term, right? So how do you manage at scale and, and still stay investing, right? Which is what we should be focused on. So is the fate of every angel syndicate to become a fund? <laughs> That's an interesting question. I think the common wisdom is Definitely in the VC space or in venture space, we will say, well, there's this glamour around being a fund manager and like GP versus having a syndicate. And, and I get it. There are advantages on having a ready pool of dry powder, but there are also advantages, specifically economic advantages of the syndicate model, right? So my point being, it's there are advantages and disadvantages on both sides. It's about understanding the nuances and just playing where it suits you. Put this in context, right? A lot of emerging fund managers, which is a nice way of saying first-time fund managers, you go out, raise a fund, $5 million, $10 million. It sounds like a lot of money, but really at that scale, you are subsidizing the model, right? You're absorbing risk. You're writing relatively small checks, 100, 200K checks, maybe. Whereas I'm already, you know, I, with my syndicate, I can punch way beyond that. But at the same time, This is an interesting point. I don't know if this is the right forum to discuss it. I think that there are some interesting hybrid strategies, investment strategies that only work when you've got a syndicate and a fund operating in parallel, right? I'm just kind of like 
organizing that in my head these days and, and, and thinking about it, right? Like, how do you find alpha if you have both of these in vehicles? Because, you know, most people, it's like you have one path or the other, very rarely both, right? So if you do that, and what is the, the asymmetric advantage you have here? Ooh, I'm all ears for the word hybrid and <laughs> you figuring it out. And I'm sure <laughs> someone else is listening in. You got to sh- spill, like, I don't think you have an sure. answer, right? But what is it that you're puzzling out, right? Because you're saying like the economic advantages sure. of just a syndicate leader versus the fund manager or doing both with a symmetrical approach. So how do you see that playing out? So, so I'll give some start by giving some context, right? I'll say that everything that I structure and design through what I do is about super scaling the investing that I do, right? I have no ambitions to be a teacher. I teach angel school to share the knowledge to help other angel investors. But it also helps me, right? Because it helps me super scale my network, access, reach, all of these things. As an example, when I teach the angel school program, it's eight weeks, two hours live sessions. I teach it myself. And the other part of the proposition is that after you graduate, we invite all the angels to come sit on my investment committee. Okay, the idea for them is, You've learned the academics with me. Now I provide this IC forum, which becomes this live sandbox for you to work on real deal flow, build your track record with me in a safe space. You get a say in which deals that I ultimately syndicate and invest in. And I even share carried with interest with the team. So it's almost like an on-ramp for them, learn the program, get hands-on, and then go build your syndicate when you're ready, right? And when you think another way of thinking about the IC structure is that this is a way for me to build like a, a super network, right? Because I'm not operating like a vanilla syndicate, some guy side hustle doing this on the weekends or whatever. I basically have an extended team of literally 10 people on a, on a weekly basis, same playbook, same, same song sheet, helping me screen deals, find the right founders and work on diligence. And, and we all benefit from this together, right? So it becomes a scaling lever for me. So the next phase of this is when I think about having a fun vehicle on top. Why would it make sense? I think there are investment strategies that work, right? Because you think about venture, what we do, you got like pre-seed, seed, ABC, da, da, da. Every fund or investor chooses where to play. And you can at most span two to three stages. And, you know, that's it, right? This is like where your capital where you can like swing your bat. Now, when you have both vehicles, what if we can benefit where both structures can benefit, right? Just as an example, you think about hustle funds model, right? $10 million fund. They swing 50K checks on the early pre-seed, basically, you know, under indexing on those early risky bets. You have a longer relationship with the portfolio companies and then you choose to like double down like later on, right? But what if, you know, that period of prolonging that, that relationship and picking our time to play is we can fulfill that using the, the syndicate, right? The syndicate might do pre-seed slash early seed bets. And then depending on how the startup evolves, like if they do okay, maybe we'll just follow on and then they reach a, an, an A or B round, they do really well. Now, you know, fun goes in with like dry powder and just like doubles down on, on the position. Right, because in a typical VC fund, the math tells us as a broad average, not everybody, but the broad average, 50% of capital returns goes into portfolio that returns less than 1x, right? Basically, you're, you're like losing money on that. 
But what if you could like de-risk that, reduce that amount that, you know, typically goes into companies that don't work out and save that capital and actually put it into like the companies that do work out. And I might be able to do this because I have a syndicate and, you know, I have a prior relationship and pipeline and positions, you know, which the fund can take advantage of later. That's kind of one idea. I think that makes a lot of sense, right? Because what you're saying is that, you know, a syndicate obviously just still performs the way they would normally do. And then it doesn't conflict with the fund because the fund is one stage down the road, right? So it doesn't conflict. There's no conflict of interest, I think, for, yeah. And the advantage can work the other way around as well, right? Because we could also do an investment strategy where it's like fund does super small earlier stage checks, right? The 50 to 100K, let's call it a 75K average. Something that's way lower than the average, you know, let's say $50 million fund for a first ticket. That buys the option. And then if the company does well, fund can go in, but then you can double down with the syndicate as well, right? In which case, the fund has created the option for like syndicate LPs. You know, my point is like the whole structure isn't about, yeah, use the syndicate to like benefit the fund because it can like work vice versa as well. Really interesting dynamics. And I think what's interesting here is thinking through what the right relationships are, right? Because I can imagine that strategy, I think it goes bad when it's not clearly articulated what expectations and the targets are. But I think the more clearly it's articulated, I think it's fair for everybody. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think the investment strategies need to be articulated because doing something, I don't know why, maybe it's just in my DNA to like, try hard, pardon language, try hard shit that nobody else is like doing and see if it flies. But it's also differentiator, right? If, if it works, it's like, okay, this is pretty cool. And what's interesting is that you mentioned this earlier, right? Which is like, you know, you keep doing deals, but at some level, I think what you implied is that angels don't scale, right? You know, so they don't scale with the backend work they have to do in terms of data room. They don't scale with the LP management for network and I guess they don't, wouldn't scale for portco success or even investing, yeah. right? And I think that's a problem, not just for angels, right? But it's a problem for syndicates and even for funds, right? So how do you think about that fundamental reality? The venture scaling issue is really an issue, right? You think about a $100 million fund, sounds like a lot, but really how many FTEs do you have? Like what, three, four headcount? It's actually not a lot, right? So going back to like what, what we discussed earlier, that investment committee construct is, is basically our, our scaling lever, right? It's one way of me not having to feel every first founder call and to just have an extended network working around me, right? It's a solution to the problem, right? I don't know if it's the right one or the best one, but it's our solution. And, and so far, it works, right? Because we teach the Angel School program. It's pipeline to the IC. Not everyone chooses to be part of the IC, the investment committee on a regular basis, but the ones who do, we have a super high sticky rate, right? I mean, we're talking about 70, 80% like attendance rate from people who like opt in. Very regular. We're building a team of people who really love this, they're passionate about this, and, and they just want to do it. And by the way, we meet on Singapore time, like on a Saturday morning, right? So it's like a real test. Like, the attendees either are in North America, in which case it's their Friday evening, or in Asia, which is Saturday morning. And I assume that they show up on these calls because, you know, for a reason other than they just want to hang out with Jed over Zoom. Yeah. And when you think about that, obviously, there are some parts where you've had good times and bad times. Could you share with us a time that you personally have been brave? Yeah. 
So the most relevant and pertinent thing I can think of, my response to this question is, is basically what we're doing now with, with Angel School. The mission of Angel School is to help angels build and scale syndicates and invest at six-figure scale into their thesis. But what it takes to do all that, right? We're basically a startup. Not only that, we're basically a bootstrap startup. I've chosen deliberately not to accept venture funding. I believe I can raise the money, but I've chosen not to because I don't want to be an education institute. I have no desire to be like on deck, just have more programs and then bigger cohorts, right? Those are your levers. I want to stay investing. That's my goal. And in terms of syndicate building, I know for a fact we are the only ones that focuses on this as a discipline, right? I know all the SPV admins all the main SPV admins in the world at the, at the C level. And they're all like, oh, yes, we need this, right? We need something to help our BD pipeline become viable syndicate lead. So we know for a fact, like nobody else does content like we do. At the same time, we're inventing a category, which you're paving trail. It's extremely difficult. I don't know if it'll work. You know, is the market there? Is the timing right? There's all of these things that, that are unknown, right? And also, in the grand scheme of the world of venture, like, who am I? I'm nobody. I'm not Calacanus. I'm not Brad Felt. You know, you know I, I've done okay as an angel. So it's very vulnerable to take thinking and turn that into content, articulate it, and put yourself out there and go down this path, right? But it's something that I'm choosing to go ahead with because I, I feel there's something there that we're onto something. But let's see. So, you know, this is we're early, early innings of the journey here. You said something about putting yourself out there, right? And you're not these people. You're not Brad Felt. You're not Jason Calacanis. What does it mean to put yourself out there? What's so scary and what's so brave about it? Sure. I guess I don't come from a position that I, if I say something, like people want to like listen and, and pay attention to it. I work and, and articulate the thinking into frameworks and all of this thing. And then literally just teach it, right? There's no real feedback mechanism. There's very little validation. Like the only real test is like you put it in front of other people who are also angel investors and, and hope not to get laughed out of the room, right? You know, it hasn't happened yet, but it's extremely like vulnerable, like, especially when you're doing it for the first time. Like I remember when I first started my first cohorts for, for angel school, I got a group of angels together, you know, some of them, you know, like Yiming and and these guys. And we just started doing this. It was like, let's see if they show up next week. <laughs> they did, you know, and we're still going. <laughs> Amazing. One thing that you share about Angel School, what's one thing you think that you teach or you share that keeps everybody coming back? Honestly, I, I, not to pat myself on the back, but the content is really good, right? We're always like getting better at this, always testing ourselves, always developing new things. So it isn't really one single thing but as you alluded to when we were chatting offline right people like real stories so the greatest value that people get with working with us is actually working on on real deal flow right like learning the economics and being part of the program that's baseline that's just to get everybody on the same os but the proof of the pudding and and what gets people really excited is like hey you bring on this founder and then we work through diligence together. We form deal teams. We write deal memos, right? And, and people love that process of just like digging in and basically trying to like solve that puzzle, right? I think that's 
that's the sexy fun stuff. You know, it's where we get to apply all the knowledge. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. So I'd love to kind of like recap, I think, the three big themes that I got from this conversation. The first is thank you so much for sharing your own professional journey. I really enjoyed how you move from drilling for oil and gas in Malaysia and Singapore to, I guess, mining for tech in America and now to obviously investing in founders as an angel and as a leader of angel school. So really interesting professional journey and transitions and I think some good reflections I think along the way of what you had to learn and unlearn. The second, of course, I think was a really interesting conversation about the roles and responsibilities of an angel, but also the syndicate leader. And I think we talked about a bunch of interesting things. Like we talked about, for example, trust is the currency that keeps the syndicate going. And yet there's also a conflict of interest, right? Where syndicate leaders can perhaps be over-incentivized to push optionality checks that benefit the syndicate leader more than they would to the individual angel. Lastly, about how you envision scaling investing, right? We talk about how it's difficult for angels and for funds to scale their various operations from data rooms to LP networks and management to portco success to just investing. I think there are some interesting conversations about how you're brainstorming different investment strategies and approaches at scaling it, but also I think choosing to found angel school to help peers figure out how to scale and build infrastructure to make it happen. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing. Oh, I appreciate you having me on, Jeremy. Thanks for the invite. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.